0: Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith?
1: I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith, I think about what resonates with me.
0: I feel authentic, it brings me peace.
1: I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience.
0: I kinda just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know, you just gotta follow it.
1: You just gotta follow what you think is
0: your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions.
1: I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now.
0: Hey there, and welcome to the Humble Skeptic Podcast. I'm Shane Rosenthal, and joining me for this episode is Brett Kunkel, who is the founder and president of MAVEN, which is an organization that exists to equip the next generation to know truth, pursue goodness, and create beauty, all for the cause of Christ. Brett has also co-written a book that I'll be discussing with him titled A Practical Guide to Culture, Helping the Next Generation
1: Navigate Today's World.
0: Brett Kunkel, thanks for joining me.
1: Shane, it's great to be with you. Uh, I look forward to this conversation. So before we talk about your book,
0: tell our listeners a little about the organization you founded.
1: Yeah, well, we, you know, I've been working with young people for the last 25 years. They're my heart. And I know that if I'm going to effectively reach young people, we got to go after the moms and dads, the youth pastors, the Christian educators as well. So those are really our two main audiences. And what the idea behind it was, we're working with a young, uh, a younger generation that needs good apologetic training. They need mm-hmm. good theology. They need that foundational stuff. And yet, what's really hitting them front and center, day in and day out, is culture and yeah. and worldview, and that is really undermining their faith. And so, we just wanted to be a little more broad and more culturally. Savvy, if you will, and help young people navigate really that immediate felt need of, hey, I've got a friend who's transitioning. I've got a a friend who's gay or lesbian, and I need answers to that because that is undermining my Christian faith. So that was kind of the idea.
0: Talk to us for a minute about your unique approach to mission trips.
1: Yeah. So one of our three main strategies is what we call immersive experiences. What we found is that, you know, through the years, the, the stuff that we do in the classroom with young people are in our homes in terms of just kind of teaching is really important stuff. But I don't think it's adequate alone. I think what we need to also help them do, particularly by the time they're in high school, is we need to get this teaching and this training out of the classroom, if you will, and into real life. And so what we do through our immersive experience program is exactly that. So we have an apologetics trip. And the goal there is to really help young people uh, learn how to defend the faith and have reasonable conversations. It, this is where it's out of the classroom in the real life, and it just comes to life. And so a young person who's on the apologetics trip, we're going to go to Berkeley's campus and talk to some skeptical Berkeley students, or we're going to meet with the Atheist Club at Berkeley, or we're going to go to the Unitarian Church. And uh, so the, the idea with all these trips is to put them in situations where they have to engage the ideas they have to engage their minds, but also their hearts, and they have to engage with uh, the world around them. So it's not just a worldview up here in the mind, but it's a worldview and a, a life view that gets lived out. You know, ideas have consequences. Uh, so let's get into the topic of your new book, which you
0: co-wrote with John Stone Street. Tell our listeners why the two of you decided to write A Practical Guide to Culture.
1: John and I, uh, our hearts and minds are aligned in really engaging the culture, equipping the church. John's the president of the Colson Center uh, that it just is a real kind of kindred spirit with Maven, if you will. And John and I are good friends. And we, we started talking about the need to equip parents because parents are the primary disciples of young people. John and I looked out there and said, there's just not a lot that we think engages the culture on a thoughtful level and puts together a lot of the practical stuff so much of modern christianity is just so overly pragmatic and it doesn't equip parents with the framework with the right. uh, you know the intellectual and conceptual tools that they're going to need to really help their kids navigate the culture. So that's, you know, it was really out of a a heart for the people who are discipling young people, primarily parents, but also we think that youth pastors and Christian educators play a huge role in this as well, can be really amazing allies for parents. I, I think we need to expand the circle of allies in an aggressive secular culture. So yes, parents are primary but that doesn't mean the youth pastor or the youth leaders don't play an important role in the the, the pastor and the educators. Podcast hosts. Podcast hosts. <laughs> absolutely. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, but it's just this idea that we're just so isolated in this individualistic culture as a church. We need to come together as a family and really disciple the next generation. Parents first and foremost.
0: In your introduction, you use the metaphor of waves and undercurrents to help your readers think about culture. Can you talk about
1: that? Yeah, it really comes from living in Southern California most of my life. And, uh, you know, I started surfing in junior high and high school and fell in love with it, surfed through college, got married when I graduated from college. And I thought, it'll be amazing to teach my kids how to surf, to do this as a family. And so when my wife and I had kids, we got them in the water right away. And I realized that there needs to be an intentional process if I'm going to equip my kids For the ocean, I can't just put my two year old in the water, push them out on a surfboard and say, go for it, right? They're going to drown. Yeah. And and what they need is actually, they need my protection at first. My long term goal is to help them to surf all by themselves, navigate the water all by themselves. I don't, you know, I don't want them to need me anymore. Uh, But in order to get there, the first step is protection. But in that protection, there's also training, passing on knowledge. I mean, you got to have knowledge of the ocean. Yeah, you know, currents, you, you got to see what's going on, not only above the water, but underneath the water. Right. I mean, I've seen where it's been, you know, pretty small day out there and it doesn't look like the waves are big, but there's strong rip currents. And I've seen kids and adults get in a lot of trouble and have to be rescued. And so I realized that this was actually a really great analogy for what we need to do with our kids in the culture. I mean, if the culture is like the ocean, there are parts of the culture that are wonderful and beautiful, and it's like that calm, beautiful tropical beach. And there are other parts of the ocean where the, it's just churning and there's rip currents and there's huge waves, and you can get pounded and you can drown or eaten by sharks. Yeah. Eaten, <laughs> <laughs> eaten by sharks. Yeah. You got you to think about all of those things, right? right? And so you got to have the right preparation. You've got to be knowledgeable about things and you got to get some experience. Ultimately, the long-term goal is that we send our kids out of our homes and our churches into the culture to be ambassadors for Christ, to engage the world successfully and, and to survive and, and to thrive and not drown. But in order to do that, we have to be very intentional. And I think the first step in a, a very secular culture is a lot of protection. But the protection is not the long-term goal. That's the problem with, I think, some Christian parents is that they make that the long-term goal. And it's it's protection for the sake of adequate training and preparation, because one day I want my kid out there surfing the waves of culture all by themselves.
0: Yeah, there's a middle ground between sort of let's wrap them in bubble wrap over protection, but then also sending them out totally unprepared. Yeah, go do it. And then they're swallowing water. I mean, there's got to be some kind of middle ground. A lot of churches
1: and parents aren't doing that well. That's right. And that's where, you know, you get kids that aren't ready if they've been overprotected. And then on the other side of it, you get kids who get beat up by the culture yeah. and are ready to drop the faith before they even leave the house. Mm-hmm. You know, so we've got it. We've got to really think carefully through this process.
0: And so the, the undercurrent, the cultural undercurrents are basically those ideas that are not on display, but they're sort of The things that cause waves, successive waves to come crashing on the shore. And you say the waves in your analogy or metaphor are sort of like those cultural issues that come up in the the 24 hour news cycle. But behind that are these sort of ideas embedded in culture. Talk about that.
1: Yeah. So you have, uh, you know, waves are very visible. You can be standing on the shore, you can see the waves. And I think, you know, there are clear issues in the culture that we can very clearly see. I mean, LGBTQ, mm-hmm. those issues are front and center. They're big waves, they pound our young people. All they've been told is, well, the Bible says this is wrong and that's it, you know yeah. and so they just have no idea how to navigate this. Those kind of issues are the waves, gender identity, uh, you know pornography, casual sex, entertainment those are the things in in part 3 of the book that we kind of identify as these clear waves but again going back to that surfing analogy you got to be aware of what's going on underneath the surface and so these are these undercurrents in the culture that are not quite as visible but have a powerful influence and so we look at things like just the information age right we live in uh, an information age where we're overwhelmed by information we don't know how to navigate that so we don't know who are the authorities we should trust? In fact, for a lot of young people, the amount of information undercuts the idea of an authority. Yeah, Like I don't need to go to mom and dad. I don't need a wise sage or mentor or pastor in my life. I can Google it, right? Because it's all at my fingertips. Those kinds of undercurrents are kind of beneath the surface They just are not as explicit, but are having a powerful impact. The whole idea of extended adolescence, you know, sometimes these undercurrents eventually become waves. So there are some parts of the culture that now are coming out very clearly and saying, yeah, the goal in life is to not grow up. That's clearly not the goal of life. So a lot of these are, are just things that you have to, you have to do some cultural analysis. You have to spend some time studying the ocean of culture, if you will. And I think here's the big takeaway that parents and pastors and Christians need to think about. Uh, How does the culture so powerfully shape us? Uh, It's often by simply presenting to us what should be normal, right? Let's take a, a, a smartphone, for instance. People aren't going around saying, everyone needs to own a smartphone. Everyone should own one of these right? No, there's just advertising. There are movies, there are, you know, cultural narratives that present smartphone ownership as the normal thing. And I mean, think about how we've been influenced by this. I would guess that most people in America and and Christian parents didn't spend a day or a week, reflecting on the nature of this technology, mm-hmm. the power it has to influence and shape us. It was just presented as this is the norm and we, we just kind of buy into that. This will help you be a better you. Yeah, it's just presented as normal. Yeah, And so now our young people, all of their friends at school have smartphones and they don't reflect on this whatsoever. They just, everyone's got it. It's the norm. If I don't have it, I'm kind of abnormal. I don't want to be abnormal. And so that's how culture powerfully influences us. It's kind of like, we're just in the water of culture. We're absorbing it. We're splashing it on each other. And that is how culture powerfully shapes us. And so it's going to be important for us to kind of pull ourselves out and constantly evaluate the waters. Yeah.
0: What's a good definition of culture? And how does it not only shape what we do, like the habits you were speaking of, but also how does it influence the way we think?
1: That's one of the most difficult things to define is the word culture. What we outline in the book are four things in particular that I think help us get a little bit more handle on this. It's really hard to lay out any kind of definition that encompasses everything, but these are, are, are some of the key aspects of culture. There are the ideas of culture. Right. So there are ideas that we propagate, that we promote, that we engage in in the culture. And these these ideas have influence then on other things like champions. So champions is another part of culture. These are the individuals. These might be sports stars. They might be celebrities. They might be professors. You know, at one point, champions were Christian leaders. You know, all these different individuals who are promoting or arguing for or pushing different ideas. And so there's interplay between the ideas and the champions. And then you have things like institutions, whether it's something like the Boy Scouts or whether it's church or whether it's, you know, business, the institution of law, the institution of education, Hollywood, yeah, Hollywood, all of these things make up culture. And then you also have um, artifacts. So these are the poems that get produced, the the songs, the books, the buildings, the clothing and these artifacts all often communicate ideas, right? These things aren't neutral, but they're communicating, you know, certain styles of clothes, certain pieces of art are communicating ideas. So there's just this dynamic interplay between all of these things and together make up culture. But ironically, here's, you know, the thing, we as human beings make culture, we create culture, and then the culture turns around and it shapes us very powerfully. Yeah,
0: sociologists and uh, media ecologists talk about the way that uh, we make tools, but those same tools then shape us. You're saying that's the same thing that that happens with culture.
1: Absolutely. I think the smartphone technology is a great example of this, right? We, We create the technology. And now the smartphone is shaping an entire generation of people, multiple generations of people in all kinds of ways. And not all of them good. <laughs> no, no. And that's where, you know, we need to understand that the tools that we use, the tools that we create are not neutral. Right. A, a smartphone is always pushing in some direction. It's always moving us in some direction. We, we, we might not argue that it's immoral to own a smartphone or something like that. We also wouldn't want to say, well, it's completely neutral then, and then just hand this over to our kid. No, it's not neutral. It doesn't have neutral. And so that means by our very use of something like a smartphone, it has the power to shape us. By our very use of social media, it has the power to shape us in, in various ways. I mean, if you think about like the system of likes and followers, right, and how that can shape a young person, particularly you take a young person. Who is struggling, you know, with identity, identity formation? You know, who am I? What am I? What, you know, right. what's the purpose of life? They're they're kind of figuring this out. So whether it's uh, you know that young girl who feels the pressure to post a sexy picture of herself, and then all of a sudden she gets all this affirmation of likes, mm-hmm. and the more she posts that, the more that's reinforced, and then that feeds into her sense of herself and her identity. I mean, gosh, that, you know, are, is posting pictures wrong? No, but it's not neutral what it can do to you in terms of, you know, these right. tools.
0: Yeah. So what we need is wisdom as
1: we use these technologies that can be used for good or ill. Yeah. That's where young people really need adults. They need moms, dads, pastors, all these allies mm-hmm. uh, to help guide them wisely through all of this. And this is where this is one thing I gotta I gotta admit that drives me crazy about kind of our modern churches. Our churches are structured to break up the adults from the young people. And I think I think youth ministry is a wonderful tool, but when we cordon off mm-hmm. young people for the entire duration of their, you know, first 18 years of life in right. the church, that is not healthy because they need wise guides who come alongside them to navigate all this stuff.
0: Yeah, so if they've been in children's church and the junior
1: high club and all those groups, they, they've never met the older folks. Yeah. And and, and so we, we end up cutting them off from the wisdom they so desperately need and from the modeling they need. And, you know, this is where you see the issue of how they're socialized by their peers then. Mm -hmm. Right. And many of their peers are frankly, very narcissistic, very self-centered, very secular. And this is what they're being socialized by. They're being socialized by pop culture and so that's why the the church plays a such a for, can play such a formative role in countering that but then also socializing them you know in the the wisdom of uh you know the scriptures and 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 what it means to live out the gospel and to be transformed and to be sanctified and Unfortunately, I think what we often do is we we kind of accept the forms of the culture without even thinking through them. And there's another thing that's not neutral, the forms that we use. These things aren't neutral, but they just, the way we set something up in church, the programming or that kind of stuff has a way of shaping us. So for instance, think about any youth event or a children's ministry event, or just picking up your kids from Sunday school or whatever. What's often the first question that we ask our kids? It's like, Did you have fun today? Did you have a good time? Yeah. Did you have a good time? Did you have fun? Yeah. See, our questions aren't even neutral. Mm -hmm. The question communicates something to the kid like, Oh, Oh, so this is the main purpose of this for me to be entertained, to have a good time, to have fun. And, uh, of course, you know, we, we step back and we go, well, yeah, that is what American culture has shaped us to kind of absorb this view of the good life, that the good life is really about pleasurable experiences. Which is why I give up
0: on my marriage if it stops being fun. That's right. You know, I don't put the hard work into fixing it. It's just, it's no longer
1: fun. I'm out. Yeah, absolutely. So we got a lot of work to do in the church, yeah. uh, especially if we're going to equip the, uh, the, the next generation for an increasingly secular culture and an increasingly hostile culture. Uh, speaking of that, you lead off your first
0: chapter with a quote from T.S. Eliot who writes, As for the Christian who is not conscious of his dilemma, he is becoming more and more dechristianized by all sorts of unconscious pressure. Paganism, he says, holds all the most valuable advertising space. Mm-hmm.
1: Talk to us about that. Yeah, that I mean, that just fits with everything that we're talking about right now. And listening to Christian leaders and sitting back and wondering, are we spending time being quiet and reflecting and thinking carefully about the culture around us. I think many of us are just asleep. We haven't developed reflective communities that when things happen, we don't step back and say, wait, let's, okay, let me think through this. Let me figure out number one, what's going on. What do people mean when they say something like, racism or what do they mean when they say white privilege Or and let me just get some clarity first
0: let me read some books on and reflect
1: on that read some books on it and then ask okay well what's true what are the facts here what are you know what as best as i can navigate reality what's the truth here and then once i've done those things all right how does this match up with god's word how does this match up with the, the teaching of the scriptures and doing some of that analysis And if we don't do that, we just get swept up into the culture. And as I listen to Christian leaders who quickly weigh in on this stuff, I I just wonder, have you done any reflection? Because you sound just like the culture, but you kind of sprinkle some Jesus on it. Yeah, it's uh, Marxism with Jesus sprinkles. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And so, you know, I think that's what, you know, Elliot's talking about here. And and we just see so many examples of, of that on all of these issues when the church really doesn't think a whole lot differently than the culture Um, we're asleep.
0: Yeah. You guys write that culture catechizes us and forms us into its own image. As I was recently talking to my own kids about this very thing, it dawned on me that one of the advantages of getting older is that you begin to see how arbitrary – things end up really being. You know, when you're 14, you look around and you say, this is the way the world is. But when you get to be 54, you see this new morality that everyone is currently assuming and demanding that we all conform to is actually different from the one that was just in vogue five or 10 years ago. (laughs) And so when you understand that it's arbitrary, it's easy to spot it for what it really is. Namely, it's an alternative dogma to the Christian faith.
1: Yeah. And this is where I think it's helpful to under, you know, help our young people understand that kind of the source of morality is no longer anything outside of ourself. There's no objective standard. And this is why it turns out to be arbitrary because it's grounded now in each individual, you know, the mantra of a younger generation is you do you I'll do me. Right. And, and it's this, this, this autonomous expressive individualism that says my desires my wants and my satisfaction of those things is the highest good. Yeah. And hey, you have your own desires and your own wants and that's fine, you do you, I'll do me. And so it turns out that there's no real solid grounding for these things except the individual. And so, yeah, it's very arbitrary from individual to individual, their subjective preferences on this stuff. And this is why it's important, I think, to start the catechism of our kids very young. Like If parents are waiting to prepare their kids when they get to junior high and high school, man, the culture's already got a hold of them, right? It's already been catechizing them all along. And so we have got to realize that as soon as we have our kids, when they, as soon as they're, they're speaking, you know, we are beginning this process of catechism. And I think, you know, maybe a helpful kind of one, two, three step process for parents to kind of think about this would be to say at those, those first, you know, stages, let's say it's just, you know, zero to age 10 or so. Okay. Uh, you really want to, I think, ground your kids in the what, and this is just good theology. You know, theology is the Christian worldview and, uh, and it's the truth about reality. It's not just my theology. It's theology that is an accurate description of the nature of reality. Yeah. It's the grammar stage, the grammar of life. Exactly, exactly. And this is kind of yeah, being informed a little bit through kind of my views on education and classical education, Mm -hmm. right? This is the grammar stage. And what what we're doing is in that stage, we're just pouring the, the truth into our kids, whether they understand it at all, you know, and grasp and comprehend all of it at that point is not as important as just pouring it into them, getting them versed in this grammar of truth and grammar of scripture and and then what we do as their minds begin to develop, they move into the logic stage.
0: Lots of why questions, not just memorize these facts, but tell me what it means.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's not just teaching the what, but now you add teaching the why. Mm -hmm. And sometimes this is where sometimes I think parents inadvertently create a situation where their kids don't feel comfortable asking them questions or stop asking them the questions.
0: Yeah. That's the place where it really becomes dangerous because if the kid sort of learns quickly that I shouldn't ask questions
1: about the faith, then they kind of check out. Oh, absolutely. Because here's the thing. If we shut down our kids' questions, they don't stop asking questions. Yeah. They just stop asking you and me the questions. Right. And they will Google it. They will ask Siri. They will ask their friends. They'll go ask that you know uh, YouTube personality. Yeah. With technology, these things, uh, you know, we don't have to wait for our kids to find these things. These things are looking for our kids. Yeah. So that grammar stage is the foundation, but then we we have got to add that second stage of teaching the why. And you always teach the what. But then you add teaching the why, you know, and I actually think that maybe one of the reasons why so many of our, our congregations lack the maturity that they should in their faith is because they're stuck in that that first stage. All they've gotten for all of their life is just the what, the what, the what. And they've never been taught the why and how to think about these things for themselves and to be really reflective and thoughtful. And so we add that. And then by the time your kid's in high school, in classical education, that's the rhetoric stage. And the way I characterize that is that's where you teach the how to. So you take the what and the why, and now you get it out of the classroom and you put it into real life. So, for instance, when, um, you know, I look for opportunities like this with my own kids. So if Mormon missionaries show up at my door or Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking, Man, perfect opportunity, prime opportunity. And so I make sure, hey, I set up an appointment for them to come back. And then all my kids, I'm going to make sure all my kids are at home and we're going to sit down and I will do some prep with the kids beforehand. uh, And I will tell them, okay, you're going to do the talking. You're going to ask the questions. I'm going to kind of sit back, you know. Interesting. So you have the kids doing the interviewing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we did. Oh, that's great. We do some prep beforehand. We'll read the materials that the Mormon missionaries tell us to read. And then I'll give the, you know, I'll help the kids formulate some questions, but then they get to start engaging. And then afterwards, it's great because, then we do a debrief and my, you know, if the kids had questions they could answer, we can go back through that. And then we spend some time praying for those missionaries and realizing and, and reflecting on the fact that, yeah, they're made in the image of God uh, and they're lost and they're unredeemed and they need Jesus. They need the true gospel, but they also are valuable individuals who god has Mm -hmm. made and who we we treat with dignity and respect no matter what they believe you know and and so there's just it's not only engaging the ideas but it's also just living this stuff out and we have to look for more opportunities like that for our kids because i think we just do so much behind the four walls of the church or inside of our home and so then our kids go out and they're they're not prepared for the engagement it's kind of like if i you know spent the first 18 years of my life teaching my kids the how of surfing or the what of surfing and it was all book knowledge and i never got them yeah. in the water and gave them some experience man the first time they don't have the muscle memory exactly yeah they're not they're not going to be ready and one of the key things is is learning to articulate right and most adults know that when you are forced to teach something that's when you really learn it and that's when you internalize it. You know, and this is one of the benefits. We we do some uh, homeschooling with our kids and we pull in our high school kids who are at home and they teach our elementary school kids on different topics. And plus, not only do they learn the material, but then they're pouring into A younger sibling or, you know, a a, a brother and sister in Christ Mm -hmm. and getting outside of themselves. Hey, yeah, school is not just all about you and your grades and what you can accomplish, but it's also about passing that knowledge on to, you know, others. So there's so many valuable things in that, but uh, that articulation is so key in helping them to internalize these things, because ultimately we want them to own the faith for themselves. And so, if we don't give them their own reasons why, if we don't help them to see how this stuff works out in real life and impacts, you know, life and culture, then uh, they, they they often don't internalize it and own the faith yeah. for themselves. Yeah, one of the things that I found
0: was really helpful over the years was using these artifacts from culture, you know, whether it's a book or a movie or a, a popular idea, something that's going on in the news, and using that as a way to ask, what are the assumptions behind this? What's this movie? What's this film? What's this song saying? And then using that as a starting point, you know, in the past, catechism itself was focusing on the grammar stage, just memorize these words. But that interactive stage where you're interacting with the artifacts from culture is a really good method of catechesis.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, this is, and and this is where you can kind of capitalize on our kids' interest in the screens, And to say, all right, let's take that YouTube video or let's take that movie or that Netflix series and let's watch it together and then let's talk about it, you know, and this is where sometimes what we'll do with our kids, uh, and now we don't do this every time because otherwise our kids will never, they'll never want to watch movies with you. But there are times (laughs) where in the middle of the movie, we're pausing, we're saying, all right, stop here. You know, here's a reflection question, Mm uh, Here's this character, how are they being portrayed, right? There's a story Mm -hmm. that's being told here. But there are ideas behind the way and values behind the way that they're communicating and posturing this person. Is this person the hero? Or are they a villain? What, you know, what's going on here? Right. And just getting them to kind of see this with worldview eyes. We do the same thing with music. Uh, we have our kids read through lyrics before they download a song on through Apple music or whether they listen to it on Spotify and it's been presented as normal. Like all the kids are listening to this song and it's like, well, I just, I want to be normal. I, it's a cool song, and and when we stop and kind of hit pause on the culture, we help insulate our kids and, and inoculate our kids, is I think a better word, right? From the influence of culture, then they they think through these lyrics, and you know, you 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 help narrate it for them and mm-hmm. say, look, you know, what's this saying about the value of women and what a woman is for, and particularly in relationship to a man. You know, what do you think about that? Is that really a present a dignified view of a woman or whatever? And then mm-hmm. they step back and they're able to say, "Oh, wow, okay, yeah," and they're not just swimming along in the current of the uh, the cultural waters.
0: So, Brett, how would you respond, or how would you encourage you know the students you work with to respond to someone who says, "I'm glad that all that you just described in terms of your Christian worldview, your view of the Bible, your view of Scripture is personally meaningful and enriching for you,
1: but I follow a different set of religious truths." Yeah, so I think the starting point with these kind of objections, without really any kind of objections, is just asking questions. Someone said, "Hey, I, I follow a different set of spiritual truths or religious truths." My first question is going to be, okay, well, tell me about those. Yeah. Uh, what are those things? What are the, the guiding views that you have? Or what are, you, what, what are your views about God and who he is? And I'm just going to spend some time really that first step of clarifying. Okay, tell me what your views are. Yeah. Uh, especially if you want to, I think, engage young people effectively you, you can't just come strong and say, well, you're wrong and there's absolute truth and I can prove it to you. And right. You want to you want to really engage them and, and, and listen, listen, not so that you can look for the points where, you know, they got it wrong and you can you know kind of tag them. No, you want to listen. So you really get to hear their heart and mind, know what they think, what they believe, why they believe it. I think when you do that necessary work of building some of that relationship and that trust. You can then become an authority for those young people because they grow up suspicious of any authority, Mm -hmm. and yet they also desperately want some authority in their lives because they're just fully unanchored in so many different ways. So we can earn that with them. So the first step is just to say, hey, okay, what are those views? And then that's going to really inform where I go with that person. If If I'm talking to a young person, they say, well, I believe in God. I just don't think it's a God of the Bible. Mm-hmm. All right, well, I've got some information now. I don't have to be arguing for God's existence. Uh, we can start talking about, well, hey, what, do you think God has revealed himself? Uh, how so? In what ways? And we can, and then eventually work our way maybe, to, you know, to the scripture or to his revelation in Christ. So that really is, I think, almost always the best way in general, to interact with young people when they bring up objections or questions to the Christian faith, start with questions and really clarifying what their views are. And then what you find is that when you start asking, once you get clarity on what they believe, and you start asking, well, why do you believe that? Right? Because that's the second question. Okay how how did you come to that idea? Where did you learn that from? Are, do you do you have any reasons, any evidence for yeah. that view or that you know that take on things? And that's where you find most young people, they, they haven't thought that far ahead. Exactly. They just have these things that they've repeated from the culture. They've been catechized by the culture, but they haven't been you know, educated very well. But in fact, this is we've, one of the things we find when we take students on these immersive experiences mm-hmm. because they're very intimidated. Christian students are intimidated to go talk to a stranger on you know, UC Berkeley's campus about religious and moral issues. And always that very first day, I tell them, I say, I said, trust me, you guys, you're going to do better than you think you are. And at, by the end of this trip, you're going to love this part of the trip. Hmm. Sure enough, they go out, they're scared to death. They go get in a couple conversations, they come back and they're like, well, that, that person didn't know anything about what they believed or why they believed it. You know, And just a little bit of training, these young people know a lot more. Yeah. So I think that's one way to really engage. And then kind of defang the objections that they're they're going to face. Yeah. And you're
0: also mentoring them in treating people with respect. These are people who are made in the image of God. And your, your goal isn't to win arguments. Your goal is to win the person to the truth. And ultimately, most people in modern secular culture kind of view themselves more than anything, in my view, as shoppers, consumers. And so I have all these different religious and philosophical choices that I'd get to pick and choose. So we kind of default with what you were saying earlier is, you know, what makes you happy? Are you having fun? But that's not really the most important thing. What is more important is, is it true? And when you ask those kind of
1: questions, people are kind of, hmm, I never thought about putting truth with religion. <laughs> yeah. And that—and unfortunately, that's a lot of our own kids, too. Yeah. Uh, but what we found is that when they have adequate preparation and training, then they're leap years ahead of the, the secular culture and they can engage it. And we can send them out with confidence that the culture is not going to take them, you know. And that's a really good feeling. Like, you know, we're our our oldest son is a senior in high school. He just uh, he just graduated and he he knows what he believes and why he believes it. And so we are now confident to send him out to surf on his own. And that's a really great feeling as a parent. But it took a lot of work and a lot of intentionality. But man, the long term payoff is just huge.
0: You know, it seems to me, you know, when you think about like the kinds of experiences you read about in the book of Acts, you don't simply have an apostle giving a speech about how fun it will be if you come to this meeting, or how my life was changed after an encounter with Christ. What you find are you know, attempts at persuasion. They are reasoning and persuading men. Uh, they are walking through the scriptures in the synagogues, showing how Jesus is the Christ. And in Greek context, Acts 17 comes to mind, they're reasoning and interacting with artifacts from culture, statues and poetry
1: yeah i i think in fact th- one of the things that we do at the end of the trip is we do some evaluation uh when we do these immersive experiences and we ask the kids we say okay how many of your kind of your weekend week out experience in the local church looks like the book of acts right A- and how does this trip compare does this trip or your local church experience look more like what you read in the book of acts and inevitably Kids will say, Man, this experience. Yeah. And and why is it? Why does the the modern local church look so different? Yeah, maybe we need a reformation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Paul, he knows his audience, right? So when he goes into the synagogue and deals with the Jewish folks, he's using the evidence of scripture to show that Jesus is the Messiah. When he goes to, you know, Mars Hill and he's talking to the, you know, the Greeks and the Stoics. You know he's, He knows that, that language, he knows those ideas, and that's where you know, he's reasoning with them from some of that common ground. And in the same way, we need that how-to. But then I think here's another important thing that we find when we kind of look at the book of Acts, is the content of the message, right? Gosh, when you start taking the content of what Peter and Paul and the disciples are preaching in public settings, it's radically different than what we're talking about often in modern Christianity and the appeals that we make to unbelievers. Like, like you said, Shane, it, you'd be hard pressed to find one of the disciples sharing their personal testimony in an evangelistic setting in the book of Acts. Yeah. Instead, they don't focus on their own personal testimony. They focus on the work and person of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the center of their content. So that's what we help young people get back to, mm-hmm. you know, What we see in the book of Acts probably should be more normative for us, and it should help shape the way that we present the truth to the world, not just an appeal to felt needs. The center focuses on the truth of Jesus and his work and his resurrection. And then, because it's true, the natural byproduct of that is that there's transformation, there's human flourishing, uh, but it's important to get these things in order and not makes very simplistic kind of culture-shaped appeals to an immediate felt need. Yeah. yeah.
0: Would you recommend that pastors and youth pastors think about having those kinds of engaging experiences at their own churches where they invite the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormon to their youth group?
1: Absolutely. I was a youth pastor for 11 years in Southern California, also uh, in the Denver area for uh, a number of years. And that was a regular thing I did with my young people hmm. uh, because I saw it just bring them to life and it helped get them prepared for real life. And so we would bring out, we, let's see, we brought out Mormon missionaries to our youth group and we, we took the kids to things like a Buddhist temple. Hmm. Uh, we might oftentimes go to museums. So in Los Angeles, there's a place called the Museum of Tolerance, and they have a whole Holocaust exhibit. And that's a great opportunity to talk to kids about the problem of evil and suffering and kind of evaluating the different solutions that are out there, right? And, um, and then how Christianity offers really the only compelling solution to that. And so I think as many different ways as we can help get our kids out of that classroom setting. Because I think what I see is a lot of high schoolers just get the same thing they've gotten for the last four five, six years prior. And so many times by the time they're a junior or senior, they've checked out. Right. And most youth pastors know this. You have on, on occasion been introduced as like an atheist
0: college professor. You know, you play that role. And then afterwards you explain that you're really you know, a person who works at an apologetics organization. And then you kind of have that walkthrough. Tell us about what some of those experiences
1: are like. Well, I was motivated to do that, to do these atheist role plays. I also do a Mormon role play. I was motivated by what I saw happen on these immersive experiences. I saw students, when they got challenged, like wake up and get motivated to study. So we would take these students, they'd get torn up by an atheist or torn up by a Mormon. And because they were with us and we were walking them through that, they didn't get discouraged. They didn't, you know drop the faith. They kind of said, Hey, help me. And then they were motivated. And then you hand them a book on theology or on atheism or on apologetics. And you no longer have to say here, you need to read this. They're like, Hey, just show me the right book and I'll read it. You know? And so there's that internal motivation. So, you know, there's a lot of youth groups or Christian schools that I work with or speak at, that I'm not able to take them on these trips. Well, how can I bring some of that trip to them? And so that's where I thought, okay, I'm going to role play with them because I've seen what it can do. Yeah. And as, particularly if a group doesn't know who I am and I come in and they, I'm introduced as you know, the local community college atheist professor, it really adds some intensity to it. And often what it, it does is it just exposes young people to the fact that they know very little about their faith, right? And this is, I mean, we know this anecdotally, and just the moralistic therapeutic deism yep. of our young people is so pervasive. I do think that adults are waking up a little bit more, you know, especially to the need for worldview training and apologetic training and, and good theology. right? Because I think they're feeling the pressure of the culture. And the sad thing is they haven't been equipped. Yeah. So the
0: parents now are waking up to the fact that There is a world outside of our church walls that is very dogmatic and hostile to the things of God, and I don't know what to do.
1: Yeah, honestly, that's one of the reasons why we were very motivated to create what we call the Maven Conference. We host it in Southern California. Ultimately, our goal is to take it around the country, but it is a conference that is designed to help equip the parents, the Christian educators, the youth pastors to equip their kids. Like we want to disciple the disciples. Yeah. And because we've seen there's such a huge need and parents are, they, they, again, I think that they're, they're, there's this growing kind of felt need that they need to be equipped, but they're not. So they're looking around for resources and they're just not finding much out there. Yeah. You know? And so we need to help equip the parents because they're going to have the biggest influence on their kids.
0: Well, the book is A Practical Guide to Culture by John Stone Street and Brett Kunkel. And Brett, you have a student edition of that as well, right?
1: Yeah, the student version mirrors the adult version. There's only one chapter that we left out for the student version, but otherwise it's something that parents could read a practical guide to culture and then have their teenager, their college student read a student's guide to culture. And it could foster some really rich conversation between parents and their kids and to really help equip the kids to navigate culture. So that's uh, a student's guide to culture. Well, I highly
0: recommend both. And uh, Brett, thanks for being with me for this program.
1: Thanks, Shane, for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining me for this episode. And as always, for further reading on this topic, be sure to head to the show notes where we've included links to various books and articles by Brett Kunkel, along with many other related resources. As you're thinking about year-end gifts this holiday season, please consider supporting the work of the Humble Skeptic podcast. You can upgrade to a paid subscription via Substack, or you can make a one-time gift. We're now able to accept gifts and subscriptions from outside the US, and we also have a tax deductible giving option that you can find out about in the show notes. Another way you can help is by sharing episodes and articles with friends and family members. The address is humbleskeptic.com. That's humbleskeptic.com. And we look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives.